read from Romans chapter 12 this morning. We spent three weeks on this whole chapter, which is a record in this series, but uh, it's worth it because it's a very important chapter. And these verses that we're reading this morning are super important too. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, we'll read on to the end of the chapter. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is hungry, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the passage. Now, if you were planning to get married and you had to choose Bible readings for your service, there is an overwhelming likelihood that you'll come up with, with the world's favorite wedding Bible reading. And that is from a chapter in 1 Corinthians, which talks about love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Fantastic words, and they make the service really, really zing along, don't they? But actually, when you look at what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about, it's not really talking about love between a husband and a wife. It's talking about love in the church. Now, I'm saying don't use it as a Bible reading for a wedding because if husband and wife are in the church, it applies to them too. But actually, it's about the spiritual gifts that Christians have got and how love is much more important than any of those different gifts. Um, it talks about all sorts of gifts even in the verses that we've read. The gift of prophecy, the faith that can move mountains, giving all you possess to the poor, giving over your body to hardship. There are all sorts of spiritual gifts, including the three that it said nobody wants, poverty, celibacy, and martyrdom. <laughs> but they're all gifts from God, martyrdom being the gift that you only use once. But uh, um, all of those things are spiritual gifts for some people. And uh, yet Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have the most staggering array of gifts in the world and it still is nothing unless you have love at the heart of it. And that's why it seems to me in Romans chapter 12, he goes on from talking about gifts, which we were talking about last week, to talking about love. Because love comes over and above everything else in the Christian life. In the evenings, we've been talking about Colossians in this church here and um, uh, a couple of weeks ago in our, our evening, no, oh, anyway, uh, uh, chapter three, <laughs> um, when we, we, we did chapter three, we talked about some of the things that it says there in Colossians, I mean, the way that Christians ought to be. And here's a slide from it. It, it was saying in, in Colossians, look, if all of this stuff is true, 
And Jesus loved us, like our first two songs and the song uh, we're, we're, we're painting this morning. If that picture is true, then we have to behave in a certain way. And it's not a case of just screwing up our courage and our nerve and our resolution, saying, I must do this, I must do that. It's a matter of taking something that God has already given you. He's given you the chance of living in a new way through the power of his Holy Spirit. You don't have to do it yourself. You just apply uh, uh, God's power as like putting on new clothes in the morning. And so Paul talks about things. Clothe yourselves, he says in Colossians, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. It's as if it's the one missing piece of the clothing. You know, if you go out dressed uh, wonderfully sort of out in your top half and you forget your trousers or something like that, it's not going to look too good. And it's the one thing that binds everything together. It says compassion, that's important. Kindness, that's important. Humility, gentleness, patience, they're all important. But over them all, put on that big one, love. And so Paul, having talked about spiritual gifts in Romans 12, moves on to saying, yeah, but there's also love. And don't forget that, because whatever your gifts are, whatever you can do well, because God has given you that ability, much more important in the life of a church or a family together is love. And so Paul starts this whole section of three words just in Greek. In, in, in English, it's love must be sincere which sounds like the kind of thing that you'd hear a vicar saying in his sermon in Evensong on a nice Sunday evening. Now, it doesn't have much bite, but this is really sharp. Hegape, anokritos. It means the love, not hypocritical. <laughs> he just lays down the law. Not hypocritical love. Hypocritos uh, is obviously the Greek word for hypocrisy, uh, being one thing on the outside, but another thing inside. And Paul says, it mustn't be like that with your love. It must go through and through. You don't want the kind of love where you just smile at everybody on a Sunday morning, <laughs> shake hands with them all and say, oh, it's wonderful, it's tremendous, I hope you're doing well. And actually, you've got all sorts of complaints about it. I remember growing up as a child what it was like sometimes, coming to church in the car when my mum and dad were having a blazing row, and then finding as soon as they parked the car and walked into the church, <laughs> yeah. You know, and th then, we, you know, they'd be friends with everybody and they'd go home and at lunchtime, sometimes we'd sit around the table and I wonder what Mrs. So-and-so meant when she said this to me. You know? And, and it, you know, that is hypocritical. I don't like to think my parents were total hypocrites at all, but it's so easy for us all, isn't it, to drift into that kind of thing, putting on a face that doesn't represent how we really feel about other people. Francis Schaeffer said, you know, the one way that non-Christians are able to tell that there is something supernatural in your life is if you show a love to everybody else in your family, the Christians. And he, he even wrote a book about it called The Mark of the Christian, which he published four times in different ways because he thought it was the most important thing he'd ever written. Now, Schaefer was the man who revolutionized the Christian approach to philosophy back in the 1960s. And whole generations of people have benefited from the way that he analyzed culture and said, look, Jesus has got to be at the heart of it or it, it means nothing. But he thought this was the most important thing he'd written. He based the whole book on a verse in John's Gospel where um, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet last supper and they're appalled and horrified that he would do such an undignified thing for them it was the work of the lowest and meanest servant why was he doing that and he was saying look if i love you like this this is the way you love one another too a new command i give you he said love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another 
By this shall everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so Schaefer says, in this sentence, Jesus gives the world a way of telling who's a Christian and who's not. The mark of the Christian has got to come up. The church is to be a loving church, said Schaefer. That's what it looked like, a little weird and everything. A loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus says by this, all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of a present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Interesting, isn't it? It's interesting how people pick that out. I was listening to the car radio earlier on this week, and uh, there was an interview. Um, it was a program about film, and there was an interview with Paul Verhoeven, uh, who's now 84 years old. He's the guy who's responsible as producer for Robocop, <laughs> for Total Recall, and for Basic Instinct, to name the three. And Verhoeven's an interesting character. He's talking in the interview about how he had become a Pentecostal Christian in his teens. And he become obsessed with the idea that God was calling him to go and preach the, the gospel in other parts of the world to be a missionary for the rest of his life. And he said, it was driving me psychotic. And I had to walk away from it and say no to God because I wanted to live a normal life. And tragically now, Verhoeven is an atheist, but he's never been able to let go of religion and Jesus. And religious themes run through all of his films. He just wrote a book about the biography of Jesus three or four years ago. He's an atheist, but he can't let go of Jesus. And he sees the attractiveness and the beauty of what Jesus came to talk about. And one of the things he says is this. If you look at Jesus, it's clear you have a person who is completely innovative in the field of ethics. Jesus' ideals are about the utopia of human behavior, about how we should treat each other, how we should step into the shoes of our enemy. He no longer believes that Jesus is God, but he can see that Jesus, he, he says he came to do something that was completely against all the values of the Roman Empire. He didn't value slaves. You didn't love anybody outside your own family. And Jesus said, no, love everybody. And it just, it was so revolutionary. It changed everything. The trouble is for Hoven, believing in God has got to say, so we ought to be like this. And he's now saying at age 84, I don't think we are. I think the world is going to pot because we can't live that way. And only one person can give you the power and the authority to live in that life-denying, self-denying kind of a way. That is Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look back anyhow at what we were talking about last week and see how all this thing fits in. Remember, we started the last part of Romans. We've talked about chapters 1 through 11 all year so far about what the Christian message actually is. Having got that straight for his readers in Rome, Paul then says, okay, this is how you need to live as a result. And we saw this start of chapter 12 is where he starts to do that. He starts talking about keeping on offering your body as a living sacrifice, doing it day by day, saying, God, it's yours, you take it, you use it, it's your body, not mine, I will do whatever you want with it. But more than that, you do that by being transformed, by the renewing of your mind, by learning to think in a different way. And so individually, we all have that responsibility, being living sacrifices, allowing the Spirit to renew our minds. But we're not just individuals. And so Paul goes on, as we saw last week, to talk about the fact that we who are many form one body. We don't all look like these people, but still. And every member belongs to all the others. And he talked about the fact that God's given us all different gifts. We all look different, and we've got different spiritual gifts we're given. And they're all given to us, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of everybody else. 
God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us, as First Corinthians. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. And we saw last week there are four different uh, uh, passages in the New Testament that talk about this because it's dead important. Using your gifts to the full, using what God has given you, living out his dreams for you, that is so important. But it's not the most important thing. You might have all sorts of gifts, and we talked about them last week. Prophecy, teaching, encouraging, sharing, all the rest of that. And um, yet, uh, these things, says Paul, are not as important as love, which binds all of the other virtues together. So, love that isn't fake, love that isn't hypocritical. What does that mean? Well, I think this whole passage that we're looking at this morning is summed up really in three words. Paul's saying, if you're not a hypocrite, first paragraph, you will love. That's the obvious word. And the first few verses down to verse 13, that's what he's talking about. But then he swings around a bit and says, that doesn't just mean loving the people who are nice and cuddly and warm and friendly and the people that you like. It means accepting other people too. People that aren't like you. People that you don't naturally get on with. And if love means anything, it means acceptance as well. And then the third word in this passage, it seems to me, is forgive. Because in the third paragraph from verse 17 onwards, he's talking about, yeah, it's all right saying you can love people in theory when everything's going well. But what happens when they do the dirty on you? What happens when you get annoyed with them? Sometimes love means forgiveness too. So he's just talking about these three simple things. Now, in English, he just seems to be giving a whole a battery of commands, barking them out one after another. Love must be sincere. What is evil? Cling to what is good. And you hang on a minute, Paul. Let me take some notes here because it's coming out quick fire. In Greek, it's not like that. In fact, it's written like a poem. And this first uh, paragraph, for instance, the love paragraph, is, is written like this. In brotherly love, being devoted to one another. In honor, preferring one another. In zeal, not flagging. In spirit, fervent, serving the Lord. In hope, being joyful. In affliction, being patient. In prayer, being faithful. In the needs of God's people, partaking. Hospitality, pursuing. And he's written it in a very balanced kind of a way. Because it's not just a list of um, uh, odd commands as, as come off the top of his head. Do this and do that and straighten your tie and go and blow your nose. It's, it's not like that. It's a total picture that fits together. And uh, so he's saying this is what love is. You might remember these cartoons if you are old enough. I can see some recognition out there and I can also see um, people, Josh and Adrian, oh. <laughs> but uh, never mind. Um, about 30 years ago, maybe, this lady, Kim Kasazi, who was an artist, made a fortune for herself by doing these little cartoons, Love Is. And it's all things like, love is, giving in your last Rolo and that sort of stuff. And she drew them originally for her, her boyfriend, I think. And then she found she had a mother. And I think it was the son who took them on in Britain. And they were syndicated in newspapers all over the world. And she's made an absolute fortune out of saying, love is. And this one I put in here because it says, love is real when so much else is fake. And that's true, but... The other hand, what is real love is what Paul's talking about. And uh, I think he has his own definition of what love is in these verses from uh, chapter, uh, verse 9 onwards. Love is, first of all, loving good and hating evil. Because before you even get to talk about who do I love, there's another bigger question. What do I love? Because if your mind isn't fixed on the right things, on things that... that, that Nourish and help and, and, and build Christian community and, and, and human love and make people better, then you're going to be drawn off by your own selfish instincts again and again. Love what is, is, is good. He says, cling to what is good. Hang on to it because the world outside will try to take it away from you. 
try to make you selfish. I don't think that's how advertisers sell things, isn't it? You owe your to yourself because you're worth it. That slogan has shifted so many millions of tons of cosmetics. It's just not true. You're worth it. Treat yourself. It's worth it. Think about yourself and not somebody else for a change. And the whole world is pushing us in that way. And so Paul says, cling to what is good. Think about what's best for you, for other people, and make that the center of your life. Love that first. And hate what is evil. There's an old hymn that says, break every barrier down, thou lamb of Calvary. Show me the awfulness of sin, the thing that grieveth thee. And you know, that's when you start winning the victory over temptation in your life. When you start seeing evil as God sees it. As something that oppresses, something that depraves, something that distorts human life, something that does nasty things to other people, something that ruins you from inside. When you start seeing evil like that, suddenly it's an awful lot less tempting. <laughs> and so the first thing he says is, love is loving good and hating evil. But love is treating people like family as well. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he says. You can have... Um, brotherly love for one another on a superficial level. Oh, yes, I, I love coming here in Vic Parks. It's wonderful. They're wonderful people. And you know you're not, you're not going to pinch your bike and that sort of thing. And, you know, you, you can be on that sort of superficial level with people. Paul says more than that. In Greek, he says, Philadelphia, philostorgoi. And he uses his second word. to say That's what it means to be really devoted, unconditionally, hanging on to other people, whatever they do. This weekend, two of my daughters have fallen out slightly with one another. Don't worry, Auntie, I'm not going to tell the story. But uh, um, one of them is very, very miffed because her little sister, I hope she never hears us take, is, 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 is asking things from her, which are just a little bit presumptive. And she went to her and said, look, I think, I think this is a bit, a bit much, and didn't get the answer she was expecting. And so there's a kind of coolness between them at the moment. But you know what? It'll be gone within a couple of days. Because this is always happening. You know, they're always asking too much of one another. They're always misunderstanding one another. But they are committed in love to one another because, well, she's my sister. You know, I might not have chosen her some days, but oh, there we are. And, and, and they just love one another. And they care for one another immensely. And that's what Paul is asking for here. There's something that's a superficial matiness in the Christian church, but a love that runs deep and is unconditional. Now, love is treating people like family. Love is putting other people first. In honor, prefer one another before yourself, says Paul. Not to say, oh, I am nothing, I am nothing. No, you have everything. No, no, you, you're much more important, more brilliant than I am. No, he said, didn't he, in, in, in the last passage that we looked at, look at yourself soberly. Understand what you can do well and what you can't do well. Get a good picture of yourself. So he's not saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you don't need to abase yourself, but... Giving something to somebody else really counts when it's something you could have done for yourself. <laughs> in other words, when you're always giving things to people because you don't feel worthy, and it's, 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 that doesn't count for very much. It's just what you always do. But when you could have something for yourself and say, no, you have it. You go first. I don't need this. You, you, you have this. That is real love. It's giving something that's valuable. And so he says, put other people first. Think about their needs rather than your own. And then, magically, you will find that God meets your needs too. And uh, uh, second last one, he, love is about being on the boil in serving God. What does that mean? Well, he says, you must be fervent in your zeal. And this is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And literally, it's, it's the word zontes in Greek, and it means to be on the boil. 
It's like you've got a pan on the stove and it's simmering away and if you don't adjust the gas in a minute, it'll be all over everywhere because it really is boiling away like mad. And uh, that's the word he uses here for what your service to God has been like. The only other place it's used is in Acts chapter 18 where it's, it's about Apollos. Do you remember? He's a guy who didn't really, hadn't really connected up the dots. He didn't really understand about Jesus but he was a great Bible teacher. He taught about Jesus correctly, it says. He was very learned, and he preached in a way that a lot of people could. But what it says about him, well, the outstanding thing, what he preached fervently. And again, he was always on the ball. You never got Apollos sort of giving a talk that was tepid. You never got him saying, oh, hello, I'm afraid I've not prepared much for tonight, but I have a couple of pleasant thoughts to give. No, he wanted to say things that were important all the time. And Paul says, this is the way your zeal's got to be. Boiling over. Be determined to serve God with everything you've got, and then other people will benefit from your fervor because that involves loving them to the full. And then finally, he says that love is practical and love is expensive. He says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Don't keep stuff for yourself. Be joyful in hope. When you haven't got what you want already, be joyful because you know God's going to give it you one of these days. Be patient in affliction. When there are problems and you can't see the way ahead, be patient. Hang on in there. Be faithful in prayer. Keep on praying for people, even when God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers, because he will pull you through, whether you, you realize he's going to or not. So if you love people, you will discipline yourself to do those things. It's expensive. It takes your time. It takes your effort. It takes your energy. And it's practical. It means hospitality, it means caring for people, it means giving people stuff that they need. And all of that is what love is about. But then he says, it's about more, isn't it, too? It's about accepting people. And sometimes we get on great with other Christians. I've got people all over the world whom I really feel very close to. It's brilliant. And I, I, I'm one of the blessings of being a Christian for me is that God gives you a massive family uh, all over the place. Uh, people who are maybe not like you at all, but nonetheless, people whom you, you, you love and, and you cherish and you can relate to. But what about the ones you can't relate with? Sometimes there are Christians I don't find it easy to admit are my relatives. So what do we do with them? And Paul says, accept them. It's not always easy. It's not easy when they're persecuting you. When people are causing you problems that they shouldn't be causing you, and they are, then what do you do with them? Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So easy to, well, not curse people in the sense of saying nasty words about them and stuff like that, but just in your heart to write them off. They'll never be any good. He's always going to be like that. She always does that. Don't curse them. Bless them. See how you can bring their good out of the situation. It's difficult, too, when they're in the height of emotion, when they're rejoicing or when they're sorrowing. When somebody's really happy about something, it's all too easy for us to say, oh, that's really nice for you. <laughs> I wish it was me, you know. And you don't really share their rejoicing. And sometimes it, it, when other people are just thrilled for you with kind of un unfeigned joy that you are joyful, that just adds to your joy and makes it bigger, doesn't it? And uh, you can soon tell when somebody is really, really happy for you. It's difficult for us sometimes to get into that frame of mind. Yes, I'm glad God has given you a million pounds. My bank account's not looking quite the same as yours. You know, it's hard, isn't it, sometimes? But we've got to be like that, he, he says. It's hard when they're rejoicing. Sometimes it's even more difficult when they're sorrowing. Do you find that? Oh, I, I don't know what to say. I know I should phone him. 
I know I should go around and see her, but I really don't know what to do. Sometimes it's just being there, isn't it? Just being with somebody who's hurting. <laughs> we in this situation, I'm not telling this to, to glorify us by, by any means, but it's just a, a, a current situation. We had a situation earlier on this week where our next door neighbor came around and knocked on the door. He said, John, can you come around and uh, help me? Uh, my wife has fallen on the floor and I can't get her up again. And so I went around and we got her up and we put her into bed. The end result is that she's in hospital right now and being a lot better cared for. But I only realized after all of that was over, just how alone he felt. And in fact, he said to me the next day, I've never felt so lonely in my whole life. He was standing there having to make decisions that he never thought he'd have to make about this woman who was lying on the floor in front of him. And it was just the two of them. And I didn't do that much. I just went round, got her back into bed, and that was it. And um, yet, you know, the next day he said, oh, I'll never be able to thank you enough. You've done so much for me. I haven't. I got her off the floor into bed. It was next. You know, I, 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 and, and yet, it was just his feelings. He just needed somebody there. And sometimes you don't need to know the right thing to say. You don't need to know the right thing to do. You just need to be there for the other person. And Paul says it's not easy when somebody is suffering. We get embarrassed. We back away. Or if it's a problem that we don't know anything about, we go, oh, I, I, I can give you the telephone number of somebody who can really help you. We, we refer them to somebody else. Too easy to do that. Sometimes we just need to be in there. And real love accepts people in that situation. See, so many sorrowing people, I think, suddenly find that their world is shut down because other people get embarrassed. And the people who should be giving them help and support and reassurance just aren't there for them. Not because they don't care, but because they don't know what to do. And it seems to me that getting stuck in in that situation is a mark of love. And third, it's hard to accept people when they get on your nerves. <laughs> there are people that you just don't necessarily get on with. And so Paul says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't allow other people to jar your life. Just accept that, that you know, this is the way they are. Don't let them get you annoyed or offended. Live in harmony. If they're trying to upset you, just love them back. And they'll find that's very difficult to counter. But live in harmony because there will be people. There will always be people in any church that you belong to who will get on your nerves. I can guarantee it from the word of God. Because one of the fruits of the spirit we've got to develop is the fruit of long suffering. And I've said this before, but Michael Griffiths used to say it. How can you develop the fruit of long suffering unless God sends somebody along that you have to suffer for a very long time? It's absolutely true, isn't it? So you will always find people who get on your nerves. The Bible tells you that. So what do you do with them? That's the important question, isn't it? It's not, I wish they weren't there. It's, I wish I knew what to do in this situation. And you just give them the love that you've got. And fourth, it's not easy when they're not your kind of people. Paul says here, be willing to associate with people of low position. I think we probably all think we do that, don't we? I mean, I have never heard anybody in the Christian church say, of course, I don't associate with people of low position. No, the people who are beneath me, I will not speak to. No, we don't think that way. But sometimes we think that way because people that we don't feel happy with or people we think are somehow inferior, whether it's mentally or socially or whatever it is, we find it harder to relate to them, don't we? And so Paul says, don't let that instinct, which is an evil instinct, take over your willingness to accept anybody. I always remember seeing John Stott in action. The first time I spent a week working with him, it was a conference for sixth formers. 
And uh, this guy had just got his, his senior citizen's bus pass. He was past 65 at this point, And he never really talked to teenagers much usually. But that week, he was an absolute legend. They loved him. And you'd have 17, 18-year-olds coming up with the most fatuous, silly comments. And John stopped us saying, yes, I think there is something in what you say. How can you keep your face straight, John? But he did, because he just loved and accepted people, whoever they were, without distinction. And we've got to be like that, too. And the final thing in this one is, it's not easy to accept people when you're opinionated. And so Paul says at the end, do not be conceited. Don't think you know more than other people. Don't assume that you can see things that they can't. Don't be opinionated about things. Don't think my view is the right view, and so therefore anything, anybody who says anything else must be wrong. If you think like that, you're going to create barriers between yourselves and other Christians which should not be there. And so he said, love people and accept people. But there's a third one too, and this is the last one we'll look at. And this is the word forgive. Forgive people. This guy here in the picture, Michael Morton, went to jail in 1987 for a murder he did not commit. And he was in there for 25 years before he got out. What happened to him was he went off to work one morning at 5.30, they start early in America, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon he went to his uh, three-year-old child's nursery. His son Eric was in nursery and he was going to pick him up, and Eric wasn't there. And uh, the, the woman at the nursery said, haven't you heard then? Didn't tell you. He said, what? Your wife's been killed. Eric's with your sister. And so he went home to his house to see what had happened. And he found not only that his wife had been killed by an intruder, but also that the police had already decided that he was responsible. And so this is him in the picture, just being put into handcuffs and taken away. What on earth is going on here? That was his wife and his child photographed just before it all started happening to him. And uh, Morton was very, very upset by what happened. Suddenly he'd gone from being the man in the picture to the man in the small picture. He was a, a, an inmate of the jail. After his conviction, Michael admits he was filled with hate. We hear from some of his fellow inmates about his initial rage. He was filled with hate and he had a reason to be, says one of them. Then Michael began to realize the cost of such rage. One way he describes it, revenge and anger is akin to drinking poison yourself and hoping the other person dies from it. You poison your own insights when you see people. But that was the way he was, and he couldn't do much about it. And he said this, I'll be honest, not only the actual murderer responsible for this, but the people who put me there, I wanted to get back at them. And no one, because Ken Anderson, the prosecutor in the case, was suppressing some evidence which might have proved his innocence. And when that evidence finally came to light, more than 20 years later, there was a long trial and it was pretty obvious. There was no way that he had done it, and the DNA showed exactly who had done it. And so it was an open and shut case, and he could have been out of prison within days. But because of the work of the prosecutor, he was kept in there. And yet, he says, he doesn't hold any, any grudges against the prosecutor anymore. When I finally let that go and put it away, it's like I dropped 25 pounds. I just felt, ah. <laughs> when you get rid of burdens you're carrying that kind, it's massive. That's what he looks like today. But uh, he wasn't a Christian in those days. It happened to him in prison. Uh, when he hit the lowest point in prison, was in uh, 11 years, I think, into his sentence, when his son, who was now a teenager, wrote to him and said, Dad, I believe you did it, and so I'm going to change my name. I want nothing further to do with you. And he said, this wasn't another difficult thing to overcome. This was the end. This was a death. 
I literally cried out to God, are you there? Show me something, give me a sign. I had nothing. I was spent, I was bankrupt. It was the most sincere plea I've ever made in my life. I got nothing. A couple of weeks went by and nothing. No response. Then one night, in a way that he can't even describe properly, God met with him. He's written his story since, and he says this, I knew without having a blast that I was in the presence of God. It was ambiguous, it was undeniable, and more than anything else, it was self-evident. No words can describe it. No analogy comes close, no metaphor, no simile, nothing. Any words I might choose would be feeble, incapable of expressing his scope, his majesty, or his boundless love. But words are all I have. So, he said to readers of his book, please open your mind and your heart and try to accept what I cannot explain. And so eventually, uh, as I say, uh, things started to happen. But he says then, my life didn't change right away. He was still in prison for more than a decade after that. Everything didn't instantly fall into place. I was in prison for another decade, so it wasn't like God knocked open the doors for me. Becoming a believer was a slow, organic process that I had to grow into. But I was different after that. You can't buy inner peace, but I had it. Shortly after his release, he arrested the other guy, the fellow who had actually committed the murder. And uh, this is Morton, the brother of the real criminal as he was tried and sent to prison for a very long time. And uh, Morton's forgiveness has just been absolutely amazing, especially for this group. This is Ken Anderson, the prosecutor. Anderson was uh, arrested eventually after lots of little dodges for having perverted the course of justice. And you know what he got? He got 10 days in jail and a $500 fine. For two and a half decades of false imprisonment. And yet... You know, Michael Morton says this, I know that if you want to be forgiven, you must forgive. We're called to treat others as we would like to be treated. So I took a deep breath and deliberately chose to forgive all the people I'd been plotting revenge against. It was a conscious act of will. It was not easy and it was not instantaneous, but it happened. And when it did, it felt, I felt as if a burden some weight was lifted from my shoulders. It was a physical sensation. As we go through life accumulating grudges and bad memories and ill will towards other people, we're carrying around baggage. And what Paul is saying is here is, lose the baggage. Just get without it. Don't retaliate. That's verse 17. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. When somebody does the dirty on you, uh, the immediate instinct is, right, how do I get back? How do I restore the balance here? Don't do it, says Paul. Leave it. Don't leave any doubt about where you are either. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Don't let everybody think that you're carrying grudges or harboring evil thoughts or anything like that. Allow people to see the depth of your forgiveness. Don't cause strife. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You won't always be able to live at peace with everyone. <laughs> there are some people that you just have to, 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 to realize you're never going to make it up with. I once worked for a year in a Christian band with a girl who was an absolute disaster. And she, was just, she, she really was horrendously difficult to work with. There's an awful lot of ways to work with her. And I always remember at the end of the year, we did our last thing together. And uh, she said, right, well, I'll be off now. I suppose we ought to stay in touch. And I said, I never want to speak to you again. And she said, that's not very Christian, is it? And uh, I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I think... 
we've just been very, very poisonous for one another. And if we ever do get together, it'll be years and years. I've never seen her since, and that was a lifetime ago. <laughs> and sometimes it will be that way. But it mustn't be your fault. As long as it's, as far as it's in you, says Paul, live in peace with everybody. If it depends on you, and there's a problem emerging, then sort it out. There will be some situations where you can't. But where you can, live at peace with everyone. Don't cause strife. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, says Paul. It is written, I am, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. If there are scores to be settled, leave it to him to settle them. Now, that takes an iron will sometimes. Because everything in you cries out, I need to get revenge. I need to do something here. But leave it to God. And finally, don't let evil win. Because he says at the end of this passage, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you give in to the evil and you do what's expected of you, then you find that you are just allowing evil to win. It's triumphed. It's won. You haven't. What you've got to do is overcome evil with good, and then the evil fizzles and melts away. So that's what Paul's talking about this morning. And one final quote from Francis Schaeffer, just to put all of this together. True forgiveness is observable, and the world is called on to look upon us. Do we observe that we say, I'm sorry? Do they observe a forgiving heart? And if the world does not observe this among sure Christians, the world has a right to make the two awful judgments which these verses indicate, that we are not Christians and that Christ was not sent by the Father. But we are Christians, aren't we? And Jesus was sent by the Father. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding and we are in him, it is true. God's Son and eternal life. And if these things are true of us, then the mark of the Christian that other people out there will see coming out of grape barracks is love. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, just take all of the things that are important to us to this morning and fix them closely to our hearts. There'll be different messages for all of us in there. And I pray that this hard-hitting stuff that Paul comes up with, based on everything that we agree on, everything he's said so far about the message we believe, will start to be worked out even more over this next week in the lives of some of us as we start to see things that we could do better, ways where we could allow the Holy Spirit to improve our act by just putting in more power than we've had already to do some of the things that we've neglected to do. Help us all, Father, to follow you more closely and to see people noticing that this week. For your name's sake.